0: Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Shabbat shalom. We're continuing in our ongoing series on Safer Michele, better known as the Book of Proverbs. Today's part 16. We're going to look today at the theme of the healing of your anger. So we're going to put on the overhead a number of verses from different chapters. Proverbs 14, 15, 16, 19, 24, and 25. These verses say this. A patient man has understanding, but a quick-tempered man displays folly. A tranquil heart is life to the body, but passion is rottenness to the bones. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. A hot-tempered man stirs up dissension, but a patient man calms a quarrel. He who's slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who captures a city. A man's wisdom gives him patience. It's to his glory to overlook an offense. A hot-tempered man must pay the penalty. If you rescue him, you'll have to do it over again. Don't testify against your neighbor without cause, or use your lips to deceive. And don't say, I'll do unto him as he's done unto me. I'll pay that man back for what he's done. If your enemy's hungry, give him food to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. In doing this, uh, you'll heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. Amen. Today, we're looking in the book of Proverbs at the theme of anger, And how to handle it, uh, both in yourself and in others. And and there's four things we're going to learn about anger from these passages uh, on the overhead. Number one, it's dangerous power. Number two, how it sometimes can be good. Three, why it goes wrong. And then finally, how it can be healed. First, it's dangerous power. Anger is an explosive. Uh, It's the dynamite of the soul. Uh, And as a result, anger has the power to disintegrate things, uh, to pulverize things, like an explosive on the overhead. First of all, it can disintegrate your body. Look at Proverbs 14, 29. A quick-tempered man displays folly. A tranquil heart is life to the body, but passion is rottenness to the bones. All kinds of research shows that anger uh, is much worse on your body uh, than, than anything else. Uh, anger is far worse on your, on your heart uh, than anxiety, uh, uh, than sorrow, uh, than any other emotion. It's harder on your heart than even extreme physical exertion. Nothing sets you up for heart attacks. Nothing sets you up for heart disease. Nothing rots your bones and, and disintegrates your body like anger on the overhead. Second, anger doesn't just disintegrate your body. It also disintegrates community. Look at Proverbs 15:18. A hot-tempered man stirs up dissension, but a patient man calms a quarrel. When you get angry, you throw words around like, like weapons. You have enor- they, have, they have an enormous amount of damaging power, uh, and they wound people. Uh, they wound relationships. They destroy relationships in such a way that often you can never get them back. So on the overhead, anger disintegrates the body. It disintegrates community. Thirdly, it disintegrates your wisdom, uh, i.e. Your, your ability to make wise choices. Proverbs fourteen twenty nine, A patient man has great understanding, but a quick-tempered man displays folly. After you've cooled off, when you, you think of the things you said in anger, often terrible things, often damaging things, now, after you've cooled off, don't you feel like a fool? Because you acted foolishly, <laughs> and were totally out of control, and you just lashed out uh, in resentment, and in hostility, uh, in, in, in animosity, in malice. When you get angry, it distorts your view of things, your view of the situation, uh, your view of yourself, your view of, of the world, your view of others, so that you make stupidly destructive choices and the overhead but that only does anger disintegrate uh, your body and community and your ability to make wise choices it also disintegrates your will it destroys your ability to make any kind of intelligent choice at all proverbs 19:19 19, 19, a hot-tempered man must pay the penalty if you rescue him you have to do it over and over again and again and again of all the emotions anger is the one most like an addictive substance Because anger leads you to denial. You can admit you're worried. uh, You can admit you're sorrowful. You can admit anything but anger. Anger hides itself. Anger is like this addictive substance, and it leads you into denial. So you say, Well, I'm not angry. I'm just sticking up for myself. Or you say, I'm just getting it off my chest. Or I'm just an activist. Uh, I'm looking out for justice. Or, Or I'm just direct. I tell it like it is, yes. I like to rock the boat. <laughs> because you deny your anger, you could have anger, uh, and the more angry you are, the more these problems, physical, mental, psychological, these problems, they show up. Uh, and, and the more you have anger, the more the problems this anger brings into your life, the broken relationships, uh, etc. cetera. Uh, the more this ha- that happens... In order to keep up this fiction that you're not angry, uh, that, you haven't, that anger hasn't caused these problems, you've called, that you've caused them yourself, you have to be even more angry. You have to be, be angry at the people that let this go wrong, at the people that, that, that go wrong. So in order to stay in denial about your, how angry you are and how your anger is at the root of your problems, you have to get even angrier. Anger becomes addictive. Here's a letter to Dear Abby, who used to be this newspaper counselor uh, back in the day. Dear Abby, you told a mother of of a three-year-old with anger problems to let him kick the furniture, to get the anger out of his system. Well, my younger brother used to kick the furniture when he got mad. He's 32 years old now. He's still kicking the furniture, what's left of it. (laughs) But he's also kicking his wife and and his kids and the dog. And anything else that gets in his way. <laughs> Last week, he kicked the TV out of a second-story window. The window was closed at the time. <laughs> this was quoted, by the way, in psychology today. <laughs> it was breaking up the fact that about 30 years ago in our culture, there was a lot of emphasis on venting your anger and how healthy it allegedly was to freely express your anger. Where more and more people are starting to see that what Proverbs says is right. The more you vent your anger, actually the angrier you become. It's like an addictive drug. You lose all control. And remember, the fruits of the spirit are the opposite of anger, right? They include patience, kindness, gentleness, long suffering, self control. So, on the overhead, number one, do you see the destructive power, the, the enormous destructive power, the ability to disintegrate things that anger has? But interestingly, number two, Proverbs and the rest of the Bible also says that anger can sometimes be good. Look at Proverbs sixteen thirty two. He who's slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who captures a city. The ideal in Proverbs and the ideal in the Bible isn't no anger or blowing up anger, but is slow anger. The ideal isn't no anger or blowing up anger, but slow anger. In fact, in some situations, it's a sin not to be angry. It's also a sin to blow up with your anger. But rather, the ideal is to be slow to anger. You say, what? Sometimes it's a sin not to be angry? I thought good people, they don't get angry, right? But that's not what the Bible says. Being slow to anger, that's the wise man or woman. That's the ideal. Look at Ephesians 4, 26, what Paul says, Be angry, but sin not. So Paul's saying it's sometimes okay to be angry as long as you don't do it in a a sinful way, which also means it's not always necessarily sinful to be angry. Anger is not inherently sinful. It's how you express your anger that matters. Be angry, but sin not. And the imperative tense that Paul uses here, uh, be angry, It implies that you will get angry from time to time. And the further implication of this command is that you should be angry sometimes. Be angry, but sin not. So on the overhead, one fourth century believer puts it like this. One who's angry without cause sins. But he who's not angry when there is cause sins. For unreasonable patience is the hotbed of many vices. Now that's really weird, isn't it? Uh, not no anger, and not blow anger, but slow anger. <laughs> Why? Because that's who God is himself. In fact, when Moses meets the Lord at Mount Sinai, Exodus 34, and he says, show me your glory, which means show me the essence of who you are, God says, I will declare my name to you. And you know what the Lord says to, to describe himself? Look at Exodus 34, verse 6. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. That's my glory, the Lord says. I get angry, but I'm slow about it. He says, I'm the Lord, slow to anger. Now, modern secular people, they say, wait a minute, I believe in a God of love, not a God who gets angry, (laughs) but on the overhead. But if if you have a God who, think about this, if you have a God who never gets angry, You can't have a God of love. Because if you never get angry about anything, you don't love anything. Because if you love and you see the thing you love being threatened, you're angry. If you're indifferent, you're not in love. On the overhead, uh, author uh, Becky Pippert puts it like this. Think how we feel when we see someone we love ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. Don't we respond with, do we respond with, with benign tolerance as we might toward strangers? Far from it. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. The more a father loves his son, the more he's angry at the drunkard, the liar, the traitor in his son. And if I, a flawed, self centered sinner, can feel this much pain and anger over someone's condition, How much more a morally perfect God who made us? True love sometimes gets angry. Indeed, anger in its uncorrupted origin is love moved to deal with the threat against someone you love. On the overhead, anger in its pure form is love in motion reacting to a threat against the one you love. If something you really love is threatened, you get angry at the thing that's threatening it. Anger rises up to defend the thing that you love. Anger, therefore, in its pure, uncorrupted form is love in motion. When someone or something you love is under threat. So when you look at the things in your heart uh, that most anger you, ask yourself, what am I defending? Look at the things that make you most angry and ask, what am I defending? And then you'll be able to tell what your heart loves the most. This will reveal the deepest loves in your heart. And that's the reason why the Bible says God is angry at sin. Why? Because God loves us. And he's angry at the cancer of sin that's destroying the human race. The human race which he created and loves with his whole being. And if you look at Yeshua, the Bible, whom the Bible says is perfect... You see Yeshua getting angry many times. He's angry at the money changers in the temple. He's angry at the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders for their hypocrisy and their false teaching. He's angry at death at the tomb of Lazarus. And the words describing his emotion are incredibly strong. You know, in the literal Greek, it says he bellows with anger, that he snorts with anger. (laughs) Why would Yeshua himself get so angry? Because he is a man of love, of perfect love, of pure love. That's why he's getting angry. He gets angry, but he sins not. Now, in an individualistic, relativistic culture like ours, uh, these kind of cultures that put all their emphasis on getting my rights, uh, we hold up anger as as too positive. Uh, We say express it. And in contrast, uh, in traditional moral cultures, where all the emphasis is on family and, and tribe and clan, uh, on doing the right thing, they say, oh, suppress your anger. Uh, anger is seen as a very negative thing. Good people don't get angry. But the Bible does not endorse either approach. The Bible has a unique take on anger. The Bible sees anger as potential goodness, but also its destructive and dangerous powers. Well, you may ask, if anger has this potential for good, why is it so destructive? And that leads us to our third point uh, on the overhead. So we've seen anger is dangerous power uh, and its potential goodness. Now, number three, why does anger go wrong? Look at Proverbs 24:28. Don't testify against your neighbor without cause or use your lips to deceive. Don't say, I'll do it to him as he's done to me. I'll pay that man back for what he's done. In this passage, someone's really angry at someone, but it also says, if you look at this passage carefully, despite the fact that you're angry, you don't have a just cause for it. Now, how does that happen? How do you have anger that's disproportionate to the cause or inappropriate uh, to the cause? Here's how. Our anger is disordered. St. Augustine says the biggest problem we have is disordered love. There are many things in this world that are good, uh, your spouse, your family, or your job, perhaps your political cause or your accomplishments. The problem is we turn good things into ultimate things. Look at the overhead. Uh, the problem is we don 't just love things that are good but we look to certain things to give us the happiness uh, and significance and self worth that only Yeshua the Messiah can give us, and the overhead. And when we turn good things into ultimate things, or when we love good things too much, more than, more than we love Yeshua, that's when our emotions get absolutely distorted. So, for example, uh, you break up with someone you love, you're going to be profoundly sad. But if when you break up with someone you love, you want to kill yourself, what's happened is you've turned that good thing into an ultimate thing. You've turned that person, or, or your need for, for, for romance or affection, into an absolute. You've got to have it. It's the only way you're going to be happy. And when that happens, you turn a, when you turn a good thing into an ultimate thing. When you love something and look at something, and the way you should only uh, look at and love the Lord, that's when your emotions become out of control. That's when they become disordered. That's when your emotions become disproportionately magnified and uncontrollable, and you're acting out in the flesh, not the spirit. That's what happens. Now, let's apply this to your anger. If it's true that in its pure form, anger was originally just a form of love, then disordered love is what creates disordered anger. On the overhead, your anger is disordered in three ways. First, your anger is disordered in its cause. Right, Because we make good things into ultimate things. We love them more than we love God. We make them into idols. Second, your anger is distorted and disordered uh, in proportion. So why is it you get more angry when you're snubbed, much more angry about a personal snub than you are about injustice uh, to a whole group of people in a different part of the world? Why? It's disordered love. There's nothing wrong with getting a little bit kicked off if someone slights your your reputation. But why are you a hundred times more angry about that than some horrible, violent injustice being done in some other part of the world? Why? Because you may believe in God, but if God's love for you is an abstraction, if what you're really looking for, for your significance, for your security, is people's approval, uh, or a good reputation, or status, or success... Or romance or achievement, then anything that gets between you and the thing you have to have, you become implacably angry. You have to have it. You're over the top. You can't shrug it off because your entire ego is invested in it. So your anger is out of control if you don't get this thing or if it's threatened. Objectively, it only warrants maybe a little bit of anger. But your anger is enormous, it's uncontrollable, it's disproportionate, because you've made this thing your God, your idol, your ultimate desire. And conversely, there are other things for which you ought to be angry, but because of of your selfishness, your pride, your ego, your disordered loves, you're hardly angry at all about it. So our anger is not only disordered in terms of its cause uh, and and in terms of its proportion, but over the top uncontrollable. Now, number three, uh, it's also disordered in regards to its goal. Proper, pure, loving anger always seeks to do what I'll call a surgical strike on evil. If you love your your, your teenage or young adult child and you see them being an idiot (laughs) and you want to destroy the idiocy, not the child... You want to destroy the fool in the child, not the child. That's ordered love. That's proper use of anger uh, in a godly, measured, surgical way. But in the more normal, disordered, sinful anger, you don't go after the problem. You go after the person, and you don't just want restitution for injustice. You want vengeance. You just don't. You don't do just a surgical strike. You slash and burn. (laughs) And there are levels to our disordered anger. Level one, there are things that that bug us every day and and we're openly angry about it. Level two, uh, it's hidden. Uh, There are betrayals and injustices uh, and letdowns that we won't forget. And we haven't been able to forgive. And our anger hides under the surface. So level two, hidden anger, often leads to more level one, open anger. So, for example, uh, if you're a man and a woman has wronged you and you haven't totally forgiven her, you're going to be quick to be angry at other women. You're going to be quick to perceive you're being slighted by by other women. Or if you're a member of a particular race or class and you're wronged by someone from another race or another class and you haven't totally forgiven them, that creates an, uh, an anger level, a level two It's under the surface it makes you more prone to be hypersensitive, to perceive slights and offenses, to these little microaggressions, and to get angry at other people from that same race or class. And underneath the whole thing, there's a low level of anger towards God himself. You see, if you build your life on things, and we all do, by the way, to some extent, I'll be happy if, right? I'll be happy if I'm married. I'll be happy if I have kids. I'll be happy if my kids obey me. <laughs> uh, if I'm not married, I'll be happy if I have a boyfriend or a girlfriend. I'll be happy if I get into this school. If I get this job, I'll be happy. I'll be happy if I get this or that. And life rarely gives us all the things we want all the time. All the things that we're building our happiness on. On the overhead. So then when we don't get what we want, next overhead, uh, and there's this low level of self-pity and anger. Against life and against God. And the self-pity and anger against life and God makes it hard for you to forget wrongs and to forgive others, and it makes you easily feel slighted or offended at the littlest thing. Anger is therefore at the bottom of so many of our problems, so many of our physical and emotional and psychological and spiritual problems. But you're in denial. You deny it. Anger is the number one emotion we're most often in denial about. And anger on a macro level uh, leads to wars and oppression and so many other miseries in this world. So in the overhead, uh, that's anger's destructiveness, it's occasional goodness, uh, and why it goes wrong. Now finally, number four, how do we heal it? How can you overcome your anger? And the overhead, three things you've got to do. First, you need to admit your problem with anger and disordered love. The book of Proverbs says a wise man or a wise woman isn't no anger or blow anger, but slow anger. Being slow to anger. So the first uh, key to to being angry in a godly way is you have to own your anger. You have to admit your problems with anger. Be in touch with your anger. You have to know how angry you are. It's absolutely critical as its first prerequisite to healing your anger. You can't heal it if you won't admit it. If you won't admit it's there. If you won't admit your anger, if you disguise it or you hide it, You hide it from yourself, uh, you're in denial, then when someone wrongs you and you come after them, here's what you say. You deserve my anger, but I'm not angry. (laughs) I'm not mad when you clearly are. Now, do you know what you're doing? You're saying, you deserve anger, but I'm above you. I'm so far away, so far above you, I'm I'm not even gonna let you make me mad. (laughs) But of course, you really are angry. Uh, You're punishing them, you're making them feel bad, but even if you are the victim, even if you're being wronged, uh, to admit you're angry is a necessary act of vulnerability and transparency. To come to someone and say, hey, you made me angry. And even if the person you're confronting, if they're completely in the wrong, but by you confronting them in love and admitting your anger, it gives the possibility of reconciliation. Because you're admitting your weakness. And so they can now admit their own weakness. But this doesn't work if you won't admit or own your anger. If you just criticize people and won't own up to your anger... Uh, You not only destroy the ability to reconcile, but meanwhile, you're feeding your own level two, hidden under the surface, anger. You're being secretly angry. And it's creating a root of bitterness. And roots become shoots, become trees, become forests. And if you won't admit your anger, you will be utterly controlled by it. On the overhead, second key to healing your anger, in addition to admitting it, you must analyze it. Good Proverbs twenty Don't say, I'll do unto him as he's done unto me. I'll pay that man back for what he's done. Now, by the way, in this proverb, who is the person talking to? Don't say, say to who? This is self-talk. He's talking to himself. And here's the implication. What makes you angry is not so much what happened to you, but what you tell yourself has happened to you. What makes you angry isn't what you've lost, but what you say to yourself, what this means. It's not that someone is withholding something from you that that makes you angry. But if you say, I've got to have that, I've got to have this, or my life is ruined, that's what makes you angry. Your anger comes from what you believe, not from what the people are doing to you. And you've got to understand this. Here's an analysis. Whenever you get angry, say, what is this big thing that's so important to me that I'm defending? What is this big thing that's so important I'm willing to clobber everybody around me so that I can get it uh, and not lose it? What is the thing I'm defending? Now, If you ask yourself these questions, these analytical questions, more often than not, you will immediately be embarrassed. Because typically the thing you're defending is your ego, your pride, your self-esteem. So, for example, uh, I work uh, downtown and I'm running to this lunch restaurant I I love uh, across the street from my office. And I only have 20 minutes uh, to eat before I have this important conference call. Uh, And the service there is slow that day all of a sudden. And there's a long line. And the sandwich makers are backlogged. And I'm getting frustrated uh, and upset and impatient. I need to stop and analyze the situation. Why am I mad? What's the big thing I'm defending? Remember, anger is defending something you love. What's the thing that I love so much? Well, I didn't plan my schedule to have enough time to eat. So if I can eat, eat and leave within 20 minutes, uh, I won't look foolish to the people on the conference call. But I'm afraid how I'm going to look to them I'm afraid it'll come out. I didn't plan my day properly. And therefore, I'm mad at the cashier. I'm mad at the sandwich maker. I'm mad at the waitstaff. But what am I really defending? I'm defending my ego. I'm defending my reputation. I'm defending me. Jeremiah 45, verse 5. The Lord says, Seekest thou great things for thyself? Seek them not. Use this on yourself. In times like this, when you're struggling with anger. And by the way, this verse seems to work best in the old King James English. (laughs) Because what you're doing uh, with this self-analysis is you're properly ordering your loves. You're saying, why do I love that so much? Uh, Why is it so important to me uh, that I don't look bad to these other people? Okay, I'm late because I didn't make enough time. It's my fault. I'm sorry. Why am I mad at the restaurant staff? Because I don't want to admit all that. But as soon as you say, Seekest thou great things for thyself? Seek them not. Your anger gets handleable. But sometimes to ask that analysis question is more complicated because it takes you to the very roots of your life and your soul. If you say, I'm angry. Why am I angry? What's the big thing I'm defending? Sometimes asking yourself these questions can take you to the very roots of your soul. Years ago, a Messianic rabbi friend of mine was counseling uh, two women. Uh, they both had teenage sons, uh, and they both had husbands who were being lousy fathers to those sons. And both sons were starting to get in trouble with the law. Both wives were really mad at their husbands. A Messianic rabbi friend, he, he counseled them to forgive their husbands, The wife with the worst husband forgave him. And the wife whose husband was not nearly as bad refused to forgive him. Why? Because for her, the most important thing in her life was her son's love. If her son loved her, everything was fine. If her son didn't love her, she didn't want to even live. She believed in Yeshua, she says, but Yeshua's love was an abstract concept. And because her son's love was something she had to have to even live, she was implacably, uh, irresolvably angry at anything that would come between her and her son's love. She couldn't possibly get over her anger. Her anger was going to control her the rest of her life. She had to destroy anything that would get in that way, in her way. Why? Because until she recognized her disordered love she could not deal with her disordered anger. Let me say that again. Until she recognized her disordered love, she was incapable of dealing with her disordered anger. Until Yeshua's love to her was at least as important as her son's love, there was no way she was ever going to control her anger. No way. On the overhead. So to heal your anger, you must admit it, you must analyze it, and number three, you must now transform it. Look at Proverbs fifteen verse one. A gentle answer turns away wrath. If someone comes up to you with a harsh word, respond gently. And Proverbs twenty five, twenty-one. If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. In doing this you'll heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. Now this is way beyond self-control. This isn't just saying don't take revenge on your enemies. This is saying Help your enemies. And since so it's talking about basic things like food and drink, it's even saying, save your enemies. Redeem your enemies. Now, how is that possible? Here's an illustration. The real changes in your life don't happen when you get married. They happen when you have children. The real changes. <laughs> One mother said, If you're married but don't have but haven't had children yet, it's like really like just being on a long date. Because the real changes come when you have children. Because, like it or not, want it or not, that's when the real sacrifices come. That's uh, your life, you know, your life compared to the life before you had kids becomes just one sacrifice after another. You don't do half the things you used to do before you had uh, children. Your Your life becomes your children, everything revolves around them. And you make all these sacrifices for them, right? Uh, you stay up late at night to feed them, you care for them when they're sick, you provide for their education, you take them to after-school activities, you give your life for them. And then at some point, the child becomes a teenager. And you cross his or her will. You ask them to do something. Everybody knows is self-destructive and stupid. You ask them not to do it. And the child turns on you and says something like this. You don't love me. You hate me. And I hate you. You've ruined my life. I hate you. You've never done anything for me." Now, when that happens, there's nothing more painful than that. Can you believe your child would say, You've never done anything for me? And whether or not you're a great parent, the fact is, you end up doing everything for your children. You sacrifice for them day in and day out. In fact, you sacrifice more for your children than you do for your spouse. So for the the, the one person you've sacrificed the most for, to all of a sudden say, you hate me. You've never done anything for me. That's like a dagger into the heart. Because the most unjustified, disproportionate, ungrateful, disordered rage possible is this and it hurts like crazy. And because it hurts so deeply, there's a huge test for you at this point, for the parent. There's only three things you can do. First, you can just withdraw. You you can stay away, because it hurts too much. Uh, You can't take their anger, so you withdraw, and you give them up to their own self-destructive impulses, and you've lost your kid. Second, you can retaliate with guns blazing. They raged at you. You rage back at them. You return harsh word for harsh word. Proverbs 15.1, it says a gentle word turns away wrath, but you respond with the opposite, with a harsh word. And you have 30 or more years on them of, of practice, of verbal abuse, so you'll probably win. <laughs> they call you a name, you call them a name. They say, I hate you. You say, oh, I hate you, I hate you too. That's, that's another way for you to respond to the pain you feel from this disordered rage. But in that case, you've still lost because then the evil is winning. You're becoming hard. You're becoming cold. You're further alienating them. The third option, which is the hardest thing to do, but the only way to save your child is to do a surgical strike. If you stay away, their idiocy takes them over. If you go at them guns blazing, you both become idiots. <laughs> but to do a, do a surgical strike that would target not the person but the problem, not the idiot but the idiocy, is you have to come in close. You have to say, I'm going to insist gently on the truth. This is the way it is. This is what I'm going to tell you on the overhead. To respond redemptively to an angry, out-of-control person you have to come close, you have to insist on the truth, and you have to absorb the anger without paying them back. And if you do that, if you don't withdraw, if you don't hit back with guns blazing, but you respond very calmly and insist on the truth, gently but firmly, I know you're angry, I know you're upset, but these are the facts, and this is how it's going to be, and this is what we're going to do. And if you can just absorb the pain of their disordered rage without paying them back, you have a chance of saving your child. But parents who are unable to to take the disordered rage with their child, they're not being the parents they need to be. If you want to save your child and save their relationship, you need to come close in love and absorb the rage without retaliating. Now, you can get mad. Mad at the idiot in the kid, but the surgical strike is the only way to save them. Now, do you realize what God has done for us? He's done exactly this. We are mad at him. You don't want to admit you're mad at God because angry people are often in denial. They, don't, they, don't, they deny it on the overhead. We want this, we want that, and God's not giving it to us, so we're mad. We're in denial, but the proof we're mad at him, and it's the most unjustified, the most disordered, the most hurtful possible rage, but the proof that it's there is that when God became human, when he became vulnerable, he became vulnerable, when he became killable, we killed him. When he got within our clutches, we took hold. We took him to the cross. We mocked him. You say you're a king. What a joke. We mocked him. We stripped him. We spit on him. We beat him. We whipped him. We put a crown of thorns on his forehead. We tortured him. We crucified him. We reviled him, and he did not revile back. Instead, he says in Luke 23:34, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. What was Yeshua doing? We were angry at God. But God did not withdraw from us. And he didn't come in with guns blazing against us. Instead, he went to the cross on your behalf. And on the cross, he told you the truth. And he absorbed your disordered rage without paying you back. And he didn't just take your your undeserved anger he also took the anger that you did deserve. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he says this in Luke twenty-two forty-two. He says, Father, take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done. He took the anger we deserved. He drank the cup. What's the cup? Everywhere in the Tanakh, the cup is the cup of God's anger. The, the deserved anger that we deserved because we keep ruining ourselves and one another. On the overhead, on the cross, Yeshua, Yeshua not only took the anger, our anger, which he did not deserve, but he also took the anger, God's anger, that we deserved, and he took it all, without paying us back. Yeshua responded with a gentlest word. Again, Luke twenty three thirty four. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. If you see Yeshua taking your disordered rage, at infinite cost to himself, then uh, you've seen the ultimate surgical strike, the ultimate surgical strike. He loved the sinner but hated the sin. Yeshua forgave your sins so he could embrace you, the sinner. That's the ultimate surgical strike on the overhead. And if you're melted by this knowledge of his love for you while you, you, yet you were a sinner, and you're stunned into silence by how how he responded to your disordered rage, then when other people wrong you, you can now do the same. You can say, yes, you wronged me, but I wronged God far worse. At an infinite cost to himself, Yeshua responded with cosmic gentleness. And so I must do the same with you. When you experience the ultimate surgical strike, Yeshua loving you, the sinner, but hating your sin, then you're going to be able to turn around and do it yourself towards others in love, towards those others who sin against you or who anger you. Your ego is changed because your fleshly ego needs aren't there when you have the love of God. Now, you may object. You may say, for me to love the sinner but hate the sin, that's so impractical, David. That's so pie in the sky. Oh, really? Listen to this closing teaching by the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And we'll put it on. It's long, but we're going to put it on the overhead. Yeshua, this is from one of his sermons. Yeshua said, love your enemies that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Of course, you say, All this about loving enemies isn't practical. Life's a matter of getting even, of hitting back, of dog-eat-dog. Maybe in some distant utopia, this might work, but not in the hard, cold world in which we live. My friends, we've followed this so-called practical way for a long time now. History is cluttered with the wreckage of communities who've surrendered into hatred and violence we're going to follow another way. We will not abandon our righteous efforts. Uh, With with, with every ounce of our strength, we'll continue uh, to rid our nation of this incubus of segregation. But we will not, in the process, relinquish our privilege and our obligation to love. While abhorring segregation, we will love the segregationist. This is the only way to build God's kingdom. To our most bitterest opponents, we say, we shall meet your physical force with soul force. Do with us what you will, but we will continue to love you. We cannot obey your unjust laws because non-cooperation with evil is as much of a moral obligation as it is to cooperate with the good. But throw us in jail and we will still love you send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our communities and beat us, we'll still love you. But be you assured, we will wear you down. That's heaping burning coals on their head, by the way. One day, we will win freedom. But but, but not only for ourselves. We will so appeal to your heart and your conscience. We'll also win you. In the process. And so our victory will be a double victory. The great military leaders of the past, they're gone, and their empires have crumbled and burned to ashes. But the empire of Yeshua, when he built solidly and majestically on the foundation of love, is still growing. May we solemnly realize we shall never be sons of our Heavenly Father until we love our enemies. And pray for those who persecute us, as he did for us. Hallelujah. If you see Yeshua absorbing your disordered love and responding with cosmic gentleness, then this will empower you to go out into this dog-eat-dog world that's filled with hatred and anger and respond with firm love and gentle truth, never compromising the word of God, but also not responding to it in kind, uh, to, to their malice and their animosity and their rage. But rather, you can hate st- the sin, but still love the sinner, just as Yeshua did for you. Amen. Let's stand and pray. Hallelujah. Thank the music piece. Have the music team come up. Father, hallelujah. Thank you, Father, that your anger is something you handled so beautifully, so perfectly uh, in a surgical strike. To Yeshua's death and resurrection, to destroy sin without destroying us, the sinners. And when we repent and trust in Yeshua and surrender our life to him, you fill us with your spirit and you free us from our own disordered anger. You free us from the fleshly bondage to responding to others in rage and anger. You free us to look like you, Yeshua, slow to anger angry at the right things, angry in the right godly ways, without our ego being involved as we die to self and live to you. Lord Yeshua, we confess we fall so far short of this ideal. Lord, make us wise. Make us more like you. Help us to deny ourselves and take up our cross daily and follow you. Help us to be angry but sin not. To deal with our anger in a godly way that honors you and walks in the fruit of the Spirit. We pray this all in your name, Yeshua. Amen. Shabbat shalom.